So imagine it with me. There I was standing in front of about 50 or 60 of the smartest high schoolers in my high school. Peers, people that I looked up to. They were the AP kids. Where are my AP kids at over here? You got some AP kids out here? I was standing there next to a Satanist and a Satanist teacher. The teacher of this particular cohort of students asked a question that was seemingly innocuous, and I should have known the answer, but he said, uh, tell us what the significance of Pentecost is to Christianity. I should have known the answer to that because at the time I was a Pentecostal. <laughs> uh, but instead of having a ready answer, I stumbled. And I said, well, uh, Pentecost, Bible, it's in there, I know it, and it has great significance. I don't know what I said, but it was probably worse than what you just heard me say. The next question had to do with the nature of God's goodness and the obvious example of evil in the world. And so I, uh, I, I tried to respond. And if I could be quite honest, I, I, I did not do a good job. In fact, in front of all, not all my peers, but it felt like everybody, in front of these people that I respected, I was flat-footed. I was found without an answer. I had no good answer for the Satanist and the Satanist teacher. I was humiliated. In fact, maybe you can empathize with me. There are times when we're confronted with questions about what we believe or what we say we believe, and yet we don't have a ready answer. Um, maybe you're not in front of 50 or 60 of your peers and your AP class to, to, on top of that, but I felt like I had seriously done a disservice to Christ and a disservice to anyone who knew me as a Christian. Uh, I did. I thought I was ready. I thought I was ready to go. I thought I knew enough. And yet when push came to shove and the Satanist challenged me, and, and along with just a, a pretty innocuous question from my teacher, I, I fell flat on my face. <laughs> I was embarrassed, but I was more embarrassed for the sake of Christ. I thought I knew enough, and, and yet I clearly did not and I didn't have the wisdom at the time to say, you know what, I don't know, that's a good question, but I'll find out. <laughs> that would have been better than anything else I would have made up. That day, I knew if I was going to call myself a Christian, I had to have some answers to some of the most obvious challenges to the Christian faith. I mean, for you, that, what, what would be your answer to a question as simple as, why do you believe what you believe? You know, when all is said and done, it's a pretty strange belief system. To say that you're a Christian means that you believe a guy rose himself from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. And not only that, but God himself is a trinity of being. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all co-equal, all co-eternal, and not one is the other. They're all distinct, and yet they are one God. You say that you believe that. Why do you believe that? Do you have good reasons for what you believe? In fact, would you be able to defend it if someone were to push you in the chest and say, well, tell me, Christian, why you believe what you just said you believe? I wonder if you'd be ready for that. Young person, the battle rages on today. And in fact, as we talk tonight about the rules of engagement, I want you to be aware that the battle that we're about to talk about is piping hot. In fact, it's one of the best times to be a Christian because we get to come to the social arena and say, we have answers to some of the questions that you're asking. And granted, not all the questions that are answered are, yeah, not all the questions that will answer have easy solutions, but if you're willing to spend some time, in fact, the next six weeks together, thinking through some of our answers to this, you'll find that the Christian system is pretty coherent, but the battle is hot. 
The battle is so hot, in fact, that you need to be ready with answers in your own mind about why you believe what you believe, which is why we're going to spend the next six weeks talking about apologia. We're going to tonight spend time thinking through the rules of engagement, the way that we interact with people. So important because it's not so much what you say, it's how you say it. Even if you were to say, you know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. That's far better than you being a belligerent jerk and asserting the truth to somebody, but doing it in such a way that it's offensive. The demeanor is wrong. Mahatma Gandhi is famous for saying things like, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. They act nothing like the Christ that they profess to believe. Now, whether or not that's a true or a false accusation, I can say that Christians can do a better job. We can all do a better job at defending the truth that we believe in. It starts with the right attitude. But again, the war that we fight is a spiritual war. Second Corinthians chapter 10 says it this way, for though we walk in the flesh, we're all part of the physical body, we're all part of the physical realm, we are not waging war according to the flesh. That is, when we fight with other people, when we're trying to gain spiritual territory, it's not a battle of who's stronger, who's got the bigger muscles. It's not a battle, a battle of even who has the greater intellect. Verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but the weapons that we have have divine power to destroy strongholds, demonic strongholds, intellectual strongholds, spiritual strongholds. Verse five, we destroy arguments, and every lofty, lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is the task of apologetics. And that's what we're going to learn to do a little better in the next few weeks. But tonight we have to talk about the fact that this battle, again, even though we're talking about ideas, this battle is a spiritual battle that makes, makes a lot of difference how you interact with it. A battle that we're in isn't as exciting as helicopters and tanks and explosions. But make no mistake, this warfare is far more deadly. Like it or not, young person, you are in the war. And if you're here tonight as a Christian, I'm talking to you. You got to be ready for this. If you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. This sermon really is about an in-house discussion of how we're to interact with people like you. You don't believe in Christ. Uh, you don't think it makes sense. You have disagreements with this, that, or the other thing. Uh, we get that. Tonight, we're having an in-house discussion, a family talk, if you will, around the dinner table about how we're to interact with people who have disagreements with our faith. As we prepare to go to war, again, not a physical war, a spiritual war, we've got to know the rules of engagement. We've got to have training and preparation and practice. And this first message in our series prepares us to go into battle. And here's where, where it begins. We have to learn how to be skillful ambassadors. That's really what it comes down to, to be skillful ambassadors who are fearless and winsome. And we're doing it for the honor of Christ. That's our goal. That's our job. Skillful ambassadors who are fearless and winsome in order to honor Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going for this tonight. I need you guys to be ready. I need you guys to know what we're about. I need you to know how to engage. And then for the next five or six weeks, I forget how many, we're going to talk about specific issues. In fact, next week, we're going to talk about God himself. Is there proof for God? How can, we, uh, how can we give evidence about God? How does the scripture speak about the evidence that we should work with? But before we even talk about the arguments, we need to talk about the approach to the arguments. We need to talk about our attitude. 1 Peter 3. We're going to look at three verses. Here they are. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're going to be blessed. Have no fear of them. People that would intimidate you or call you out for being a Christian, have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. Verse 17, skip a couple verses there. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. 
Essentially, in this first point here, you have Peter saying, hey, you're not likely to be injured if you're doing the right thing. And, and, and what he talks about just a few verses earlier, he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's, that's what he just said. He said, now who is there to harm you if you're doing those things? If you're not speaking evil, you're doing the good things, who's going to hurt you if that happens? But then Peter qualifies it because he's talking to a church that's on the verge of persecution or in the midst of it. Could be either one. But he says to this church, he says, you know, but even if, if someone were to throw a stone at you because you're a Christian or, or, or hit you in the face because you decide to speak up about Christ, don't sweat that. You're blessed anyway. Don't sweat that. And then at the very last verse, verse 17, he says, you know, here's the thing. It's better. If you're going to choose between two sufferings, this is the better suffering in this short life rather than the long-term suffering for doing evil. Essentially, he, he's, he's trying to qualify this statement while at the same time saying, you know what, guys, let me encourage you. Choose to do good because even if you get injured, not a big deal. But be committed. Do good and don't sweat the small stuff. If you get hurt, take it like a champ, but do good even so. Point number one, choose to do good even if. And you can fill in the blank with anything you want. Choose to do good even if your friends leave you, even if your teacher makes fun of you or gives you a failing grade, even if you're denied a job opportunity, even if the boyfriend that you really wanted no longer likes you because he thinks you're an idiot and a Neanderthal, even if that girl that you, were ask, that you were asking to prom says no because she knows that now that you're one of those crazy Christians. She said no to that. Whatever the even if is, you have to be in your mind committed to doing good, choosing to do good. I was in an A-push class, Mr. Ramirez. I'll never forget him. Hispanic dude, in case you couldn't tell. And he had this ponytail, looked like an Indian or a vato, couldn't tell. Pulled back hair, sharp dude. I was excited about this class because I like history. I don't love it, but I like it. I was an A-push. I was with the smart kids. And... <laughs> His lectures were fine. I didn't struggle with his lectures. His lectures were a piece of cake. But for whatever reason, the textbook that he used, I just could not wrap my head around. I really, really struggled to get a sense of where he was going with the test. And I, I tried the highlighting and underlining. I studied for hours. I mean, guys, I gave it my best shot. I really did. I just could not make the grade. I struggled in this class. I had a friend in that class, though, whose older brother had already gone to the class. He also kept his tests. And surprise, surprise, test didn't change all that much. I said, hey, man, if you want me to get those tests for you, let me know. I can hook you up. And then you just memorize the answers and you come in prepared and you got yourself a good grade. I could cheat my way through the test, cheat my way through the class and do fine. And believe it or not, I was also a pretty good student, so it was enticing to me. I thought, you know, I could keep my GPA up. I could make sure that my college application looks great but I'd be trading something of myself for that. My soul, essentially, my character, my integrity. I'd be trading a whole lot just to gain an A in the class that I'd like, but I didn't need. How did that turn out? Well, I got the first D of my high school career. That's how it turned out. I was disappointed that I did so poorly but I wasn't disappointed that I kept my integrity. Didn't make a lot of good decisions in high school, but this one I did do. It's one time, this one time in my life. 
here's the thing. You're going to have a test given to you as well. Here's a test for you that is tailor-made for you. And here's the, here's the compromise. It's not cheating to get the passing grade. In a sense, it is. It's you saying, you know what? I, I, maybe I don't know Christ. <laughs> if I just stay quiet, uh, people won't know that I'm a Christian. I won't be as bold about that. I won't speak up for him because if people know, then it's going to cause me trouble. And I'm going to get in, you know, in spats that I don't want to get in. They're going to ask me questions about why I'm a Christian. Oh, you go to that church, that legalistic church. What's wrong with you people? You're going to be put into a corner. And the test for you is I can compromise by simply just staying quiet. Or I can manipulate doctrine just a little bit so that my God doesn't sound so mean. Hell is pretty serious after all. I don't want people to think poorly about me. And that's a test for you. And the choice that you have as a Christian is, will I continue to do good even if that good isn't recognized? It's not understood as good. In fact, it's pushed up against and it's called evil. In fact, for you to say as a Christian, hey, there's only one way to heaven. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That's not considered good. That's considered bigoted and intolerant. How dare you challenge someone else from a different faith who's far more sincere than you are and even a whole lot nicer if they're a Mormon? That's a test for you. You can pass by having integrity and answering honestly, or you can fail by simply skirting the system, choosing not to do good, and especially choosing to do good with your lips, speaking the truth, which today, the truth is often, often unwelcomed. Choose to do good even if. Several reasons for this. Several reasons to do good, especially the good of speaking up. And this is all preface leading up to our apologetic discussion. So I'm going to go through this part really fast. Okay. Get your pencils ready. Get your pens ready. We're going to talk about this really fast, but it's preface that's necessary. I need you to have the mindset that no matter what happens, I'm going to do good. And that means apologetically speaking the truth, speaking the truth. Okay. Choose to do good, even if, because you were saved for good works. And in mind here, what I have in mind is the good work of speaking the truth. Again, just to, just to reiterate, apologetics is making a defense for the faith, giving a reason, a rationale for why you are what you are, why you believe what you believe. But often again, it's not welcome. So you have to say, I know that I was saved for this purpose. I was saved to speak up. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins so that I can speak up to people that need to hear what I have to say. Because otherwise, people die and go to hell. And far be it from me or us that I would care so much about my comfort and care so much less about someone else's eternal destiny. As a Christian, that's what you believe or that's what you should believe. And if you're a Christian, you choose to do good even if because you know you were saved for this very purpose. God wants you to be an ambassador. God wants you to be an emissary and to do anything less is to fall short of the call that God has given you. Choose to do good even if. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Young person, you should live your life in such a way that you answer the question. This is the question you ask and this is the question you answer. How can I do the most good for the world around me? How can I cause or support human flourishing? How do I help the world be a better place because I lived it's not that difficult. Really, it's as simple as saying, I want to do what God's word says. And I want to tell other people to do what God's word says. That's what's going to promote human flourishing. That's what's going to cause the world to grow and to flourish and to be all that God meant it to be. That's a good work. And that's a good work that you should be committed to, even if it leads to negative consequences, which by the way, you should recognize that good works tend to produce good results. Good works tend to produce good results. We talk about good results. I need you to think in two ways, short-term and long-term. 
okay? Short-term, you're speaking up for Christ, you're being an ambassador for Christ, might lead to short-term consequences that are painful and not welcomed. However, long-term, so we got short-term, possibly painful. Long-term, there's going to be good results. In fact, one of the good results that you can count on is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Because you're a Christian, people slander you and say bad things about you. He says, verse 12 in Matthew chapter five, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. What that reward is, I don't know. But Jesus says, if you're slandered and persecuted because of me, you're blessed. It's essentially what Peter's saying. The good result then is eternal reward, and potentially the person that you're preaching the gospel to responds to it and becomes a Christian. Those are rewards. Those are good results. They may not be immediately available, but there's going to be good results eventually. God decides that. You also choose to do good even if because temporary pain is better than eternal pain. That's verse 17 of 1 Peter 3. It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. If God chooses to put you through the ringer, it's better to do uh, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You can experience a temporary pain of obedience or the eternal pain of regret and punishment. Christians will obey this. And so temporary pain of obedience or eternal pain of punishment, young person, the choice is yours. And, I'm, and the scripture is telling you there's a better option here. So you choose to do good. You choose to speak up even if, because temporarily it might make you uncomfortable, but ultimately it's going to be good for you and for everyone else. Peter says in a different section here, he says, what credit is it when you sin and you're beaten for it if you endure? Like, okay, you deserve that. If you stole from, a, uh, you know, from the local 7-Eleven and you get busted, you deserve that. You're not doing anything noble. He says, but if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God looks at this and says, yeah, that's my son or my daughter. He says in verse 21, for to this, you have been called suffering for good because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christian, you're called to do good things. And he says here about Jesus, Jesus committed no sin. There wasn't any lie found in his mouth when he was reviled. He didn't revile in return when he suffered. He didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that really is your call. You also are to entrust yourself, oops, entrust yourself to God Oh, is that there? Yeah, temporary pain, better than enjoy. Trust yourself to God because God's the one who's got your back. Choose to do good even if. Okay, that's all preface for our conversation now, leading us into how to be winsome ambassadors, fearless, uh, looking to the glory of God in this. First Peter 3, 15 and 16, here's how this works out. Take a look with me here. But in your hearts, from the core of your being, honor Christ the Lord as holy, in fact, he says, not only that, I want you to always be prepared, always be ready to make a defense for, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, your attitude needs to be this. Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's not enough to have the right answer. The only time it's enough is to have the right answer and the right attitude. I put it like this. Point number two, practice Christian diplomacy. Practice Christian diplomacy. It's the idea or the concept of uh, being a skillful negotiator, of having tact and a winsome attitude that even if you end up disagreeing with the person, you still walk away friends because, hey, we've disagreed, but I like you. I care about you. And that's the kind of response that someone who spars with you should have. 
Here, here's, the, here's the definition I want you to roll with, diplomacy, okay? I want that third definition. Skill in managing negotiations. You're negotiating around the topic of truth, Christ, uh, ethics, handling people so that uh, there is little or no ill will, tact. That's the idea there. Practice Christian diplomacy. I used to be in customer service and, and I, I look back on these days with fondness. Life was much simpler then. Uh, but I, I worked at this McDonald's. This is in Norwalk. Uh, this actually, this, this is a very different McDonald's than I used to work at. Mine was much smaller. They renovated it and made it all brand new. But this is the place that I worked at for years through high school. I got my car stolen there. I, seriously, I kid you not. Uh, well, okay. I, let me clarify. It wasn't stolen. It was towed, and I just didn't know that. <laughs> it was like 1 a.m. on a Saturday, and I go out and like, where's my car? And then I found out that it was towed. But I didn't know that. At 1 a.m., what are you going to do, right? So I don't know what I did to get home. I probably walked. But anyway, I digress. Customer service McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> you might not believe this, but in, in a, in a drive-thru, people are hungry and they get hangry. And so I was, I was yelled at in the drive-thru. I was cursed at to my face. I was threatened because I put some uh, fil uh, fish fillet sauce when I wasn't supposed to. Uh, I got, I got a, what's that, threatened, cursed at, yeah, all the above. I mean, no one's surprised, right? And it's Norwalk, so those threats are legit. Like, I might, I might have got shot. I avoided s serious damage. But here's the thing. When someone came through the drive-thru who was, like, genuinely a nice person, like, in that drive-thru, I'm thinking, all right, I like this guy or a gal. Not, like, in a flirtatious way. It was like, oh, I like you. I like you. So, as they would come through, you know, I'd be like, hey, what's going on? How's your night going? I'd be a lot more kind and generous to them. In fact, one of the things I loved doing for people that I liked in the drive-thru, I would make sure that, the, first of all, I'd double-check their bag to make sure it was accurate. And then if they got fries, I would shove fries in there like no tomorrow. Like, you know how they do that at Five Guys? They fill the whole bag with fries? I would do that at McDonald's. <laughs> just like shove fries in there and just put extra sauces. Like sometimes like, they're supposed to ask, how many sauces do you want? I didn't ask, I just put them in there put sauce after sauce. It was amazing. But I did that because I liked them. And, and it was so unusual to be so well treated in the drive-thru that I really, I really wanted to look out for them. You can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. That's how the saying goes, right? When you're interacting with unbelievers, the goal is to be gracious, kind, respectful, to show them a, a kind of attitude that befits Christ. Uh, and it's the idea of being a skillful ambassador who is winsome, a winsome personality. That's what he means when, when, when Peter says, in your, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is the driving motivation. When you're talking to someone about Christ or the gospel, the driving motivation is I love Jesus. I want to honor Jesus by my attitude, by my activity. And anything short of that is not apologetics. Anything different than this is not the right approach. As an apologetic student, your job is to help people come to know Christ. I put it like this. As you're practicing Christian diplomacy, you need to treasure the glory of Christ as first importance. And this is not about your uh, impressive vernacular. It's not about your ability to twist them in an in in uh, argumentative pretzel. It's about saying, how do I best represent Christ by my attitude? How do I best show that Christ is the most important thing to me and it should be the most important thing to them? I heard, I heard something this week, and I forget where I heard it, but some of you might know. I, I heard this anecdote about this Indian son who was, his family was royalty, and as he would make his way to school, his mom, who was the, the, the queen, obviously, would say, son, remember who you are. 
Remember who you are. I immediately thought of Lion King. There's like, Mufasa, right? The Simba. Remember who you are. This is the best James Earl Jones you've ever heard. <laughs> Remember who you are. In other words, act in such a way that fits the family moniker, that fits the family dynamics. Don't act like a buffoon, you're royalty. And in a similar sense, don't act like a buffoon, you're a Christian. <laughs> don't act like something less than what you are. Your highest identity is Christ. Your, your greatest goal in life is honoring Christ. Your, your, your ability to win an argument is ultimately meaningless if you have not kept Christ first. If you win the argument without keeping Christ first, you've lost not simply an intellectual battle. Treasure the glory of Christ as first importance. Peter goes on to say, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being ready, prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I think what that suggests to us, at the very least, if we're going to be prepared to make a defense for, for all of this, that means you really ought to train and be studious in your scriptures. You really ought to know what your Bible says, guys. You got to come to it with, a, with an open mind, a blank slate, and say, I know there's challenges here. And in fact, if you've been reading with us, if you've been reading DBR, I am super challenged by Song of Solomon. I get all nervous about that every time you guys are reading it. I, I mean, it, there's, there's challenging things in scripture as a whole. There's intellectual challenges. And just last week, I heard about uh, someone who was struggling, or was it maybe earlier this week? I don't remember now. Someone who was struggling with the idea of a loving God and, and, and a real eternal hell. That's a big deal. That's something we should talk about and be able to discuss uh, rationally, reasonably through scripture. But that's not gonna happen if you're simply superficially touching the scriptures every morning. You're reading your Bible, that's a good start. But if you're just being superficial about it, you're not asking good questions, you're never gonna get to a place where you're able to spar with someone in a place uh, that makes sense. How do you answer someone who says your God's not fair? How do you answer someone who says God seems to hate homosexuals? How do you answer someone who says your God clearly is a bigoted homophobe or whatever else they might say? How do you respond to that? Well, you have to know what your scriptures say to treat it seriously and intellectually and studiously. We have to graduate from merely skimming scripture superficially and instead engage with it. One of the things I love about True North is that we have some of the best leaders at our church. I'm confident of that. M many of them, dare I say all of them, invite your questions. Skeptics who are forced to come because your parents make you, I'm glad you're here. Ask the questions. You're not hurting anyone's feelings if you ask difficult questions. In fact, I think even for the Christians in your small group, they're going to benefit from the questions that you ask. There are answers, and there are intellectually satisfying answers. Christian, you need to be always prepared. And the only way to be always prepared is to have a very robust connection to your scripture. Peter says this, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. Hope of the gospel, hope of salvation, hope of eternity with Christ. He, he offers a qualifier though. He says, yet, but pause, think about this, yet do it, with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Christian diplomacy. Some of you guys might know the man Hudson Taylor. There's a, there's a name that you might be familiar with. He was a missionary to China. And one of the most fascinating things about this guy, uh, among his whole story, actually, there's a lot of things. You should read his biography. It's, it's phenomenal. One of the things that stood out to me about this guy is that when he went to China, he didn't just go and, you know, well, you notice there, he's dressed normally, right? He's wearing normal uh, Western clothes. But when he got serious about reaching the Chinese, he started dressing like the Chinese. 
He wore their painful shoes. He wore their baggy clothes. He started looking like and talking like the Chinese. He even had people who were with him do the same thing. You're serious about reaching the culture. Look like the culture, right? Look like the, per- the people that you're trying to reach. Now, I'm not telling you that you have to start listening to whoever or, or dressing, you know, the same cultural style of clothing. What I'm referring to actually is the clothing that is never out of style. In fact, the clothing that I want you to wear is hand-me-downs. They're hand-me-downs from your older brother, Jesus Christ. You need to don the garments of humility and reverence. You need to wear the clothing of humility, a humble heart that realizes that you're no smarter than anybody else. Even if you, I mean, you might be intellectually smarter, but you're not saved because you're smarter. Christ chose you out of his own grace and willingness. The reverence factor, the respect factor works two ways. The reverence toward God with a fear of him and a reverence and a respect for mankind. It's understanding that people before you are are, are human image bearers. They're people that Jesus loves and cares about. It's the kind of clothing that you need to have. When you go into the battleground and you become excited about apologetics, remember to treasure the glory of Christ as first importance. Remember to train in the scriptures seriously and studiously. Remember to don the garments of humility and reverence. Last, Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, and it probably will happen at some point if you're faithful, when that happens, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Don't know when that's going to happen, but what that really means is that we're trusting the Lord to do what the Lord does, to vindicate us. That word vindicate means that I want God to justify me. I want God to be the one to speak of on my behalf. I want God to do the work in the other person's life. I'm not going to get upset and start, you know, putting anonymous comments on their Instagram feed. I'm not going to try to get people to side with me about how awful a person that guy is for rejecting me or whatever. I don't need to do that. Christ is the one who will vindicate. I trust myself to him. He will decide when it's time to uh, let these things become an issue. He'll vindicate me. As we close this, I I, I want you to understand, to keep apologetics in perspective. In high school, when I had that humiliating experience, first thing I did was I bought books. I bought books on books on books. uh, And I started studying apologetics. I started learning about logic and rules of logic and how to best approach certain types of apologetic issues. I started studying Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. In fact, I got immersed in that. Uh, I, one of the things I did in high school is I went to a, a, I got in contact with the Mormons and I said, hey, I want to talk to you about, you know, Mormonism. And so I got invited to this Mormon house and there was probably seven or eight people around the circle. Two of them were missionaries and the others were just Mormons. Mormons were really nice. And there I was surrounded by Mormons and I was trying to make a case for Christ to these people and try to uh, have them adopt Christianity. One of the most foolish things I could ever do because I did it by myself. There was no accountability. No one helped me in this. I was just studying. I went online and started looking out for arguments. It was, it was a terrible idea. I got immersed in that. And along the way, as now that I'm substantially older, I've learned a few things about apologetics that I want you to remember, okay? There's a couple warnings that I want to put in your, in your quiver, okay? Know this. There are some dangers. Going deep in apologetics without going deep into a relationship with Jesus. That's the first mistake I see people make, and that's one that I made. You can go deep into the arguments, know all the great comebacks and all the, all the good methods, but if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. 
if you get excited about this for the next six weeks that we talk about apologetics and you're like, man, this is super cool. I love the intellectual arguments and I love thinking more deeply about Christianity. Fantastic. But don't let that distract you from spending time with Jesus because that's the point. Apologetics supports the gospel. Apologetics supports the gospel. So if you get super excited about apologetics, be sure to keep it down here and put Jesus in the gospel first and foremost. That's the whole reason it exists. Apologetics is meant to remove obstacles out of people's way so they can come to Christ. That's the whole goal. Another danger is that thinking apologetics is a magic bullet for seeing people saved. One of the things that we'll talk about, I'm sure during the the next several weeks, is that uh, intellectual arguments rarely ever do a good job at bringing people to saving faith. They're helpful. They're useful for what they are, but they're not the gospel. Romans 1, 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The gospel is the power of God, not apologetic arguments. Again, when apologetics supports the gospel, fantastic. That's awesome. But when the apologetic is the point and we're saying, let me prove to you that there's a God and let me prove to you that you have a conscience and therefore you're clearly made in the image of something, that doesn't make any difference. The person might walk away saying, oh, that was a fascinating argument. But if we're not talking about the gospel, then what does it ultimately mean? Don't think apologetics is a magic bullet for seeing people saved. The gospel is. Last danger I want to bring to your attention is that you're studying wrong arguments more than you study the truth. You're studying all the, all the errors of false religions and you're getting into the nitty gritty about uh, the law of non-contradiction and why it's so foolish to believe in relativism, which is what it is. But you're not spending time with the truth. This really goes back to that first point of loving Jesus. The whole point of all this is to have you say, okay, I love Christ most. He's the most important thing to me. All these other things are helpful. They're helpful tools in my quiver, but they are not the most important thing. The next six weeks are going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to benefit from it. But this, again, is an in-house conversation, Christian to fellow Christian, saying, as we do this, your attitude matters a lot. We got to learn and practice how to be ambassadors who winsomely and fearlessly defend Christ's honor. It's an attitude before anything else. It's an attitude before an apologetic. It's an attitude before an argument. It's an attitude before anyone really accepts what you're saying. So Christians tonight, as you work through your small group time, I have some great questions I think you're going to really enjoy, but I, I don't want you to miss the homework. At the very bottom of your sheet, if you turn your, your worksheet over, the homework part is super important because we're going to come back to this the following week. If you're a Christian, I want you to find a non-Christian and ask them those questions or ask them that question. Take notes. If you are a non-Christian and you're here again because you have to, great. Put your answer down and come ready to discuss that. I'm sure your small group would appreciate that. I'm really excited for these next several weeks. And I hope that you don't miss any of these. I, I want you to be here. And it's most important that you have time to discuss this. So I'm trying to keep myself short here and not go too long, but let me encourage you tonight, as you spend time unpacking this, go for it. Give it your best. Let's get this thing started right. Remember, the attitude matters most. And the attitude is that we are ambassadors who are winsomely and fearlessly representing, defending the honor of Christ by how we live and the arguments that we give. Let's pray and close at our time so that we can go to small groups. (laughs) 